All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you're with us this morning, and uh, I just am hoping that you'll come back this afternoon as we pray together uh, from four to five today. Uh, and well, like you said, we're going to be praying for concerns we have. And so we've talked about prayer for the last several weeks. We thought, well, we, we ought to pray too, right? So we're going to take some time at the end of this series and pray together. Just invite you back this afternoon. So if you grab, grab your program, if you would, look inside. I'm just going to ask you right now if you grab your connection card, uh, write your name on it. We'll use this at the end of the time today to respond. And while you're at it, you might as well grab your message notes out of there uh, and be able to follow along as we jump in in our talk today. So we're at the end of our series, Pray Like. And so the idea is, is that we're doing a case study of a different Old Testament character every week. And we're looking at them at a moment of incredible difficulty. And then the prayer that they prayed, and sometimes there was an answer, sometimes there wasn't. And then how they prayed, and we're saying, if they can pray like that, then so can we. And we've been talking about that. And today, we're going to get to what I think is probably the most difficult of all the prayers we've looked at. It's the most sobering, and yet I also believe it's the most hopeful. As we look at an Old Testament character by the name of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, if you want to say it that way, and we're going to look at a prayer he prayed at a time of absolute desperation. So here's the dilemma he faced. I just want to kind of set it up so you can get an understanding today. And I think that this is a dilemma that many of us have also faced or we're facing currently right now. And here it is. What do we do? How do we live? How do we respond when our circumstances, when our reality that we're in right now doesn't seem to line up with God's character or promises. There seems to be a disconnect from the reality that we're in and God's character and his promises that he've made. When you have serious questions about God's goodness, how do you pray when you're in the middle of a circumstance or a reality that causes you to doubt God's goodness? How do you pray then? This is a quote from a book entitled, How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. Don Carson writes this. The truth of the matter is that we, that all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. One of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among followers of Jesus is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. What I want to do today is I want us to think about this from the view of Habakkuk, from the view of the Bible, so that we can be prepared when we do face a tragedy that is so overwhelming that it causes us to doubt God's goodness. So what do we do when we come to those times when our circumstances and our suffering, they don't line up with what we've been told and we've been taught about God's character and promises? How do we respond when God appears to be absent or at best, he's just silent? I want to begin today by introducing you to a man. 
His name is Alan Gardner. In 1851, we have a pencil drawing of him, uh, what he looked like during that time. 1851, Alan Gardner was an English Anglican missionary. Uh, he was shipwrecked with a number of other people on a remote, uninhabited, uh, uninhabited island off the tip of South America. It was your worst nightmare come true. They had no food, they had no water, nothing for warmth in the frigid Patagonian winter. They prayed and they prayed that God would send someone to rescue them, but no one came. And Alan Gardner watched as one by one, every single one of his partners in this missionary expedition starved or froze to death. And he was the last one alive. He was the last one to die. Later, a ship came around that same tip of South America, landed found the shipwreck, and found the bodies. And when they came to Gardner's body, they discovered his journal. He kept a journal, writing down every day what was happening and what was going on. Alone and away from his family, watching his friends die, knowing that he would soon be dead as well, he wrote these words. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond all expression and would not have changed my situation with any man living, I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Wow. How do you write something like that? And mean it right at your deathbed. Far from home. All hopes are dashed. And his last words, as he knows that he's going to die himself, are, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Well, Alan Gardner had a view of God's presence and suffering that's radically different than how many people, and I would say many people in the church, many followers of Jesus Christ, how we typically view God's goodness. We usually say, God's been good to me when things are good, right? <laughs> yeah, God's been good to me because things are so good. We can look at that. It's the rare individual who can be in the middle of suffering and difficulty and can look up out of the pit and say, God is good. God is good. We typically infer the goodness of God from the good things that are going on and happening in our lives. But what Alan Gardner shows us and what Habakkuk is going to show us today as well is that it's possible to believe and know that God is good even when life is not, even when life stinks. Habakkuk discovered it. And we're today, we're going to see how he did it. And we're going to see how his prayer shows it. He knew the love and goodness of God in spite of his circumstances, in spite of his difficulty, in spite of his suffering. And I'll just say it for us today. And so can we. So can we. Uh, I, I just want to begin today by saying this. I in no way, in no way do I understand and know the depth of the suffering that you may be in right now. Or that you may have gone through at some point in your life. I'm, I'm just fully aware that there's so many people in this room uh, that have been through much more difficult times of suffering than I ever have. So when I'm talking about this today, I don't, I'm not in any way saying today that I know what it's like to be you. Just know that, okay? I could never do that. What I want to do today 
is to show you what Habakkuk learned and what I've proven in my times of desperation and suffering in my life to be true. When I felt gut punched by life and how God showed me who he was. I'm not making light of anyone's circumstances today. I'm not in any way making, want, wanting you to walk out here feeling bad because you don't experience what Habakkuk did yet because know that Habakkuk didn't feel this way all the time. What I want us to do is I want us to be able to understand how to pray when God's goodness appears to be missing or when our reality doesn't line up with what we know to be true about his character or his promises. And we're gonna see that it's possible in the face of suffering, in the face of disaster, in the face of evil, evil to still be able to know joy in the middle of it. As radical as that may sound. So I'm gonna ask if you had to grab your Bible, turn to Habakkuk 3. Some of you are going, Habakkuk, what? Habakkuk is a book in the Bible. If you want to know where it is, the Bible, every Bible has a table of contents, okay? So turn to the page of contents, and then you can find where Habakkuk is. A better way, just turn to Matthew and go left, okay? Matthew and go left, and you're going to find it. We're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 3 today. But in order to do that, and I wrestled with this all week about how to do this. In order to talk about Habakkuk 3, I have to walk us through Habakkuk 1 and 2. So we're going to kind of, you know, Skip through Habakkuk 1 and 2 to get to Habakkuk 3 so we can see the prayer that he actually prayed. And so I want to walk us through these times. So I put the verses from Habakkuk 1 and 2 that I'm going to look at on your program and you can, uh, on your message notes, and you can look at that. But just know, and here we go. Chapter 1, chapter 1, in the middle of the dark circumstances, in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the evil, in the middle of the pain, where Habakkuk is at this place, is he's pounding on the table. Okay, he's pounding on the table. He's crying out, God, where are you? Where are you? So that's the Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter one. Look at what it says in verses one and two, or verse two. How long, O Lord, must I cry out for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Wow, that's pounding. Pounding on the table of despair, and suffering, honesty. See, I just want you to you know, folks, God, God can take your honesty. God doesn't want us to stay in this place. That's the key. But he can take your honesty. So we're immediately introduced to this prophet who's confused and he's complaining. He doesn't understand. How could God allow this evil all around me to go unpunished? How could he let suffering go unresolved? God just seems to be overlooking evil, overlooking injustice. Have you ever been in that place where you felt the same? You felt that God was silent, and in that silence, what you assumed is that God was absent, that he wasn't with you. Well, God answers his prayer, and he says that even though it may look like I'm absent, that I am going to come down on injustice, and I am going to uh, bring uh, the penalty against my people for what they're doing. And he lets a packet know that he plans on using the ruthless, godless nation of Babylon as his rod of discipline to punish his people. Now, that wasn't what Habakkuk wanted to hear. You gotta know that. So he goes on and he prays another prayer, verses 12 and 13, chapter one. He says, oh Lord, my God, my holy one, you who are eternal, surely you not plan to wipe us out. 
And God assures him, no, I'm not going to wipe you out, but you may wish I had (laughs) along the way. Oh, Lord, our rock. He's crying out about what he knows to be true about God. You have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you are pure, notice that, and cannot stand in the sight of evil. So how can you use the most godless evil nation in the world at our time to punish us? Will you wink at their treachery as if they don't, aren't living in this sin? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they. He said, hey, we know we're bad, but they're a lot worse than we are. How could you use those who are a lot worse than us to do your will because you can't be in the presence of evil? And God says, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna use the Babylonians. And here's what he's saying. This is what we need to hear. I will use whatever means I choose to get your attention. I will use whatever means I choose to get your attention even the most evil nation on the face of the planet. Now, have you ever prayed, you know, God and talked to him and you felt that he answered your prayer? Like you felt that, you know, got a clear answer from what, about what he was saying, but the answer he gave you was so far different than the answer you wanted that it was hard to believe it, hard to fathom it, and actually caused you more distress because you had this answer. Well, that's what happened to Habakkuk at this point. I've talked to many people in the middle of their suffering and they say this, I, can't, I cannot understand at all in this pain and this suffering how there's any way that God could use this for his glory. And I think that's what Habakkuk is feeling as he, as he kind of rants and raves against God and that wondering where God is. See, when we're in circumstances where God seems absent or we just don't understand why he's not stepping in and changing things, or we're confused about what it is that we think he's doing, what it appears that he's doing, we're prone to feel just like Habakkuk did. I, you know, we feel, Habakkuk felt scared, and he felt alone, he felt confused, he felt distressed, and he felt doubt. He doubted God's goodness. His reality was inconsistent with everything he knew to be true about the character and promises of God. And what we see, and we don't have any idea on the time frame in this, okay? But what we see is chapter one was the railing. Chapter one was the pounding. And then we see a transition happen in chapter two. Chapter two, he transitions to a different posture. Instead of railing against God, he actually comes to a place where he's willing to sit before God. And look at what he says in the verses I put there from verses three and four in chapter two. The Lord said, this vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. No promise. It will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently. Some of you need to underline that. Wait patiently. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently. Notice this next phrase. For it will surely take place. Not probably, not might take place. It will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. So what God does here is he gives Habakkuk another perspective. And here's the perspective he gives him right now. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous, those who are my people, they will live by faith, not by sight, not by what they can see, not by reason, not by conjecture, conjecture, not by logic, not by their own understanding, They will live by faith. In the face of doubts, in the face of questions, it's 
faith in God. It's faith in God. It's trust in him no matter how difficult the circumstances may be or will get. It's the faith in God and God alone that will carry us. He called it a rock that will carry us through the circumstances that we face. And we have to keep in mind that no matter what we think, no matter how things appear, no matter how dark it looks, we need to keep in mind that God always has a plan. He always has a plan. And in the meantime, between now and then, now and when he acts, even though it may look like he's absent, What he calls us to do is to live by faith. Live by faith. Live according to my ways. God says, when you doubt my goodness, remember, I am God and you're not. Okay? That's what he's saying. I am God and you're not. Just remember that. I have a perspective that you could never have because I'm not limited by time. I'm not limited by space. I'm not limited by a lack of information in any way. And he's saying, you can rest assured that even though it may look like I'm absent, never confuse my silence with my absence. In fact, your best response is to humble yourself before me and listen. Humble yourself before me and listen. In fact, that's what gets in the end of chapter 2 in verse 20. God actually says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Not railing against him, but be silent in humility before him. Now, all that was necessary to get us to chapter 3, to understand the prayer that he prayed in chapter 3. Something happened inside of Habakkuk where he went from pounding. He went from railing against heaven. Then he went to the place where he's sitting before God, and he's just saying, okay, God, I'm going to wait, not passively. I'm going to wait actively. I'm going to live by faith right now. I'm going to do everything you've called me to do. And he moves from there in chapter 3 to a whole new perspective. In fact, this is what's really cool. Chapter 3 is a song. Chapter 3 was written just as we sang songs today. It was written as a song to God to show how big God is and how wonderful God is. So he went from pounding, he went to railing, to sitting, to writing and singing. And that's where he's taking us to today is the possibility to live with singing in suffering. Okay, three things. Three things that Habakkuk did that we can do as well. The first is he reacted faithfully, so we're called to react faithfully. The righteous shall live by faith. So what Habakkuk did is that he said, okay, God's God's silent. He's not absent. I know God. I I know this about him, and I'm going to trust by faith that he's there. I'm going to trust by God that he's got by faith that he has a plan for me. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to turn to the only one who can make sense of what is going on in my life. Turn to the only one who can make sense. And notice, nothing has changed in his circumstances, folks. When he starts writing this song, nothing has changed. In fact, the promise is that it's going to get a lot worse. It's going to get a lot worse. In fact, the news had gotten even more severe, but something had happened and changed inside of Habakkuk. It had changed so much that he writes this wonderful, poetic song to God, praising him. He moved from lamenting to worshiping. He took, and the way he did it was he took his eyes off his suffering and he put his eyes onto God. Okay, so now we're at chapter three. I'm gonna read verses one and two. This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. Here it is. 
I have heard about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. So the first thing you notice here, when he says, I have heard about you, I want you to understand that he had made his faith personal. If you do not make your faith personal, you will not be able to withstand the suffering in life. It was personal. You cannot go forward with the faith of your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather, your church, your pastor, your community group leader, your friend, your co. You cannot go forward with their faith. You have to make your faith personal. It has to belong to you. And then he says this In this time of our deep need, help us again. Would you underline that? Help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. Your anger, remember your mercy. So what he's doing here is he's saying, I have developed a personal faith. I know the stories about God. I know the history of God and the nation of Israel and the people of God. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to call, recall, remember what I know to be true about God. He calls out in faith. He's calling out to God right now. Do it again. God, do what you did in the past. Do it again. Just a just as thousands of crazy San Francisco Giants fans are going to be crying out on Tuesday night, do it again, do it again. Habakkuk's crying out to God, do it again. He's saying, do it, God, in my day, now. Do it in my situation, in my place. Do it in my generation. Do it again. Help us, God, as you did in the past. And he calls on God, who has shown mercy to people again and again in his story, to be merciful again. He reminds God, God, here's what you did to care for your people in the past when they were in another place of captivity, when they were in slavery in Egypt. And then he goes on in verses 3 through 15. I'm not going to read these today. I'm hoping that in your community group this week that you're doing message-based homework and that you're going to focus on these verses. Just know when you read verses 3 through 15 this week in your community group that they are talking about the exodus. Very poetic, poetic language, but it's about the exodus when God's people were set free from captivity in Egypt and how God rescues his people, how God came in and set his people free. So at this time when, when Habakkuk's fee, feeling God's absence, he battled it by recalling times when God is present and with them. That's the key. He went back to times when God was present and with them. And then almost to the end of the song, and I call this the bridge of the song. You know how songs we sing? We sing a verse, a chorus, verse, a chorus, and then there'll be a bridge, which is different, and then we'll go back to another chorus, and we end it. This is the bridge to the song right here in verse 13, my opinion. Here it is. You went out. Oh, it changes everything. You went out to rescue your chosen people to save your anointed ones. He was reminding himself that it was God who initiated the rescue. It was God who came when his people could do absolutely nothing about their circumstances and made it possible through the blood of a perfect lamb to set his people free. The blood of a lamb over a doorpost. The angel of death comes through Egypt. Overlooks everyone who had the blood on the doorpost. God's mercy. God's mercy. See, it was God who came when they could do nothing. 
And that's exactly what we're going to be celebrating in just a while when we have communion together. That God who came when we could do nothing. And he allowed his son to die as the perfect lamb of God. His blood was shed. He initiated a rescue for you and me. He made it possible for us to know him. Communion causes us to remember and brings us to that place where our hearts are melted as we remind ourselves of God's love for us through Jesus Christ. And this is so important. I'm going to come to this again in just a little while, but I'll just say it right now. This is so important for us to know because when we get stuck in our suffering, one of the reasons that we're unable to move out is that we put all of our attention on our suffering and we forget about our salvation. As if the suffering is the most important thing. The sin was the most important thing. And God took care of it through the blood of Jesus Christ. So he calls us to react faithfully. Next. He calls us to respond patiently. Respond patiently. Going down to verse 16. He says, I trembled inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me and I shook in terror. So he's talking about all the things he's just heard from God and sung about God and what God has actually said to him. Then he says this, I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. So he's saying, I'm going to wait for God to act. So he's gone through this spiritual transformation about by looking back at what God has done in the past, and it's helped him to stop pounding on the table, stop railing against heaven, and now he's sitting in this posture where I'm going to wait and see what God does. He's putting himself in a posture of humility before God and prayer putting himself in a posture where he's saying, now, I will wait upon the Lord. Circumstances changed? No, not a bit. Habakkuk was expressing, and this is one of the things when we get into these times of suffering, where God wants to expand us and the capacity to be able to wait patiently even when we don't understand. And even with We believe his character and his promises would say this to me, that we don't understand what he's doing at this point, but I'm going to wait patiently by faith before him, trusting him. No matter how long it takes. No matter how long it takes. Wouldn't it be great if God gave us dates? He said, here's the promise, and it'll be fulfilled on this date by this time. Wouldn't it be great if he did that, that he gave us dates? God doesn't do that. He gives us promises, and most of them come without a specific date or time. So when circumstances come into our life that seem inconsistent with his character and his promises, what we often do, we struggle in these times of waiting. We want, to, we want things to change, and we want things to change now. And God says, I have a plan. Trust me. Trust my plan. So what Habakkuk did is he did what all of us can do as well. When we're at that same place, he says, God, I will trust you. And he bowed before him. And he's basically saying in these verses, what he's saying is, not my will but yours. Not my way but yours. Not my timing but yours. I'll just say this, folks. It takes tremendous faith to wait for something that we have God's promise for but no date. 
It takes tremendous faith. So I just ask today, what are you waiting for? Marriage? Have a child. Maybe you're waiting on the salvation of your parents or your children. Or you're waiting on a child who's away from God to come back to him in some way. Maybe for you, you've been, you know, in this place of desperation. Either it's about a job or it's about finances or it's about health. And you're waiting, waiting, waiting on God. And I just want to say that will you, like Habakkuk, wait quietly and patiently before God? Because that's active trust when you do that. It's not a passive thing right now. This is active trust in him. And Habakkuk was transformed as he prayed to God. Circumstantially, nothing had changed. And now he moves to the final part of the song. He moves to the place that is just so, I just think it's radical where he moves to. He moves to the place, and I'll just say it this way, where we can rejoice continually. Rejoice continually. And this is where I just want to be real tender with some of us in the room right now that you're in a circumstance or you have been, and you're saying, I'm supposed to feel joy right now? And I want you to know that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Habakkuk says as well. So Habakkuk began, in the, he had this doubt, he had all these questions concerning God's whereabouts in, in the middle of his suffering. And he ends with this delight, this praise, this rejoicing in God about who God is and about what God is actually doing. His rejoicing was not the result of his circumstances changing in his favor. His circumstances had not changed. His, his, um, um, he praised God in the middle of his circumstances. In fact, this is what God said would be true. This is what's coming, okay? This is what, just get this, okay? Here we go. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop falls and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle in the barns are empty, Absolute devastation. Absolute agrarian economy. Nothing. We will have nothing, nothing, nothing left. Yet I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. How can he rejoice? Because the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. His vision's appalling. The promise from God is that there's going to be more suffering. The Babylonians are coming to invade. They're going to destroy the homeland. They're going to take away the livelihoods. They're going to burn down the homes. They're going to kill the flocks. They're going to cause the crops to fail. They're going to wantonly kill us, more than likely rape our women and children. They will take away all of what we hold dear, that we think are necessary for life. And as horrific as all of that is, there's this big three-letter word that actually bolded on your outline. It's the word yet, yet. I will rejoice. See, out of touch with reality here? How can he do this? I don't think he's out of touch with reality. I believe he's in touch with a heavenly reality, much beyond himself. He's describing a supernatural rejoicing or joy that comes from trusting God's character and believing that his promises are going to come true in the middle of suffering, even when I don't see how or when. See, this is different than most of us, okay? We think about joy. Most of us think that we will experience joy once we get through our suffering, once we get through the difficulty we're in. And Habakkuk's saying, guess what? 
I can know joy, the joy of the Lord. I can rejoice right now in the middle of my troubles, in the middle of my circumstances, right smack dab in the middle of my pain. And there's, folks, there's only one way I know of to have that kind of joy in the middle of that kind of difficulty, and that is that you have made a declaration that God and God alone and God only is the source of your hope, source of your joy, source of your faith. When you have a faith that relies on God and God alone, you have a joy that can never be taken away by any circumstance, not one. He's talking about a joy that exists even in the middle of severe suffering. It's a joy that's found in God, God alone, God, found in God himself. He's saying, I will rejoice in the God of my, you know, he uses salvation, the God of my salvation. So he turned his eyes off his circumstances and he put his eyes onto God. And he knew the joy of the Lord. Our team's gonna come and they're gonna sing a song to us it's actually a song uh, that's really going to touch your heart. It's a song about singing in pain, singing in suffering, singing in the difficult circumstances of life. And right after that song, then we'll experience communion together uh, this morning. Let's listen to this.
going to draw your attention to the last verse in your notes, Romans 8, 39. As you look at that, come back to what I was talking about earlier about where do we focus? If we spend our time focusing on our suffering, clamoring against it, fighting against it, railing against it, raving against God about it. God wants us to change our focus from our suffering to our salvation. So if we remember what he did for us with Jesus Christ when he came, sent his son, that he died on the cross for us, because we have sinned against him, he showed us so much mercy when he sent his son, Jesus Christ. We realize that my salvation all I need all I need and that I can face everything else that comes my way because he is my rock and I will be strong in him and as this verse says no power in the sky above or on the earth below indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is real, revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord I'm going to ask our ushers if they move into place and they're going to begin serving us, our communion. We're going to focus on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So I'm going to ask today, if you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, would you just let the plates pass and just observe today as we experience communion together? And so they're moving into place. They'll just begin serving as soon as they're getting into place. What I want us to do is we're in this posture of waiting as we get served and then as we wait to all have communion together is that we would just stay in a posture of prayer and listen to God. I have a verse that will be on the screens here from a Colossians. Talk about the joy that we can have because of Christ. And just let that be your meditation. And as soon as everyone's served, then we will uh, have communion together.
verse we've been looking at, Paul's writing, and he says this. He says, may you be filled with joy. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So we look back to the cross. It gives us the courage to face our present and our future. It gives us the promise that the future includes heaven, eternity with him. The cross gives us hope in the middle of all of our suffering. So as we come to this time, Jesus came before his friends and he broke some bread. That's what this represents, this cracker. And he said that we should take this and we should eat it to remember what he's done. Let's do that and thank him. some juice and he said this represents my blood which will be shed for you to establish the new covenant with my father this represents the blood of the perfect lamb so that we could be rescued from our sin and we can know salvation as we drink this let's thank Jesus God, in this moment, we just breathe before you. Breathe in your love. Rest in you at this moment. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have. Understanding we have. God, I want to pray now that I understand that in the back of the story that there are people in the room at every phase have been or will be. And Father, I pray today that in this, through Habakkuk, that you have taught us how to face tragedy and suffering. And you have taught us, Father, how to stand strong when we've been hit by a wave that we don't know how we can withstand. You've taught us how to be strong, to trust in you, pray fervently, react with faith, wait patiently, respond quietly, and rejoice continually. Father, I pray that your praise would be forever from our lips. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.